Slayers, this is Mixtress Ray, and you're listening to What's This Bitch Talking About? To which the answer to that question is every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer exactly 20 years after its original air date. Give or take a day, because it's a day late this week. So this week we're talking about Life Serial and the Angel episode Fredless. So let's start with... so. We're finally getting like a a big Fred character development episode. I was really looking forward to it. My overall impression of the episode is it was kind of badly done. Um uh but I think it was like written and directed by two women, so I'm giving them a pass because like most likely they hadn't been given very many opportunities to get shit done in Hollywood back in 2001. Most likely they um, also, you know, were up against a whole bunch of male crew and stupid, you know, bullshit from Joss Whedon and, you know, all that stuff. But um, yeah, hold on. I just realized I'm sitting here and I need to open my window because I'm sitting in my closet with the door shut now and I just think the window needs to be open. Surely it's cooled off by now, right? Okay. All right. So let's read the episode description. I actually don't know if it was written and directed by two women. I'm just guessing that based on their names. Written by Mir Smith and Marita, directed by Marita Grabiak. So here's the um, episode summary, according to um, Nikki Stafford. Fred's parents show up in L.A. and she tries to evade them, hoping they won't take her home with them. So I guess I just kind of like missed the overall theme of the episode, which is one of the reasons why I didn't totally love it. So, but Nikki Stafford got it, so she's smarter than I am. So I'm going to read you some quotes from her in her um, episode description. We discovered that we discover that Fred has convinced herself her time in Pylea never happened, that it was all a figment of her imagination that is still playing out as a fairy tale in her head. She tries to stay away from her parents because she doesn't want to know the truth, that if they can see her, all her suffering was real. She doesn't want to cope with that reality. So on paper, this episode... I don't know if it could have been executed better. I think it would have been pretty great. You know, just the idea that Fred, Fred was hiding from her parents because she didn't want the whole thing to be real. She didn't want her parents to see how much she'd been changed by the fact that she was kidnapped for five years in a demon dimension and blah, blah, blah. And she didn't want to admit all of it um, to them. And that, that is understandable. Um, but it just, the way that it played out, the thing that was distracting to me was it was one of those things where like Fred's parents get there and 
like they spend most of the episode looking for Fred and we're seeing Fred's parents interacting with, you know, Wesley, Gunn, Angel, and Cordelia. And the whole time they're playing it up as if we can't trust Fred's parents. And I understand why they would be being a little bit cautious, um, but they played it like like they were actually suspicious. Like when Fred goes to see Lorne and talk to him, Lorne's like, oh, you just didn't run far enough, sweetie. You know, so they're really like, which I get the misdirect, but they were a little too heavy handed with it because with that kind of stuff, you know, when you don't know till the end of the episode, whether or not you can trust a character on the first watch, that's the misdirects are fine. But when, if it doesn't reward repeated viewings, like where you go, oh, okay, I see what they did there, but it wasn't, it was too heavy handed, you know? So it's just one of those things. Um, it just, that was distracting me. So maybe this episode was actually better than I'm giving it credit for, but, um, really like the whole episode, I was just kind of like, okay, I'm bored until that moment where Fred finally sees her parents in like the train station or wherever it was. And she, Amy Acker has that fucking breathtaking performance where she just starts crying and she confesses to her parents why she's been hiding from them. And it's because she doesn't want to admit that everything that happened to her was real and she's crying. And it's just, I was sobbing. Like, despite the fact that like the whole episode, I was kind of like, whatever, just sort of taking notes, not just thinking, wow, this episode isn't that great. Then she, that performance just made me cry <laughs> because Amy Acker is that amazing, which is one of the reasons, mom, why I'm making you watch season five. <laughs> we still have two years, but I'm making you watch season five because, um, a reminder, if for some reason this is the first time you're tuning in to my Buffy slash Angel recap podcast, it is not spoiler free. Okay, now that those people have left, not that there were any probably <laughs> that just stumbled upon this random episode, but um, in season five of Angel, Amy Acker, Fred's, the character of Fred, she dies and her body is inhabited by um, kind of a god, a demon god creature that is fucking badass. And like, of course, we don't want to lose Fred. And there will be a lot of crying because that episode is actually really amazing. There are a lot of good episodes in season five. Um, but I, it's weird because like, you know, to see one of your favorite characters die sucks. And then the rest of the series of Angel, we see, you know, Amy Acker playing this, you know, demon god that has inhabited Fred's body. And I think she's a super badass villain. She's one of my favorite villains of all time. And I really like her. And she actually kind of like starts to be likable for more than just being a villain. Like she actually, like she goes on in the comics she lives on in the comics still, I think. Um, I haven't read all of the Angel comics, but I know that she continues on in the Angel comics, um, that character. And um, 
it's she's great. I can't wait to talk about her. But anyway, <laughs> Fred is one of my favorite characters. She probably is my favorite character of Angel, honestly, because I just she's such a great actor and she's just she's all the things that Willow could have been for me. Like I know Willow is a favorite for a lot of people, but Willow bugs me. <laughs> like you guys know that, <laughs> but um she bugs me because of mostly because of her selfishness. Um and that is Amy Acker as Fred has the same qualities about her that Willow, you know, like the whole, like you put Fred in danger or if Fred cries, you're crying. You put Fred in danger, your people are like protective immediately. It's that same, she has that same quality about her that Willow used to have. Like at this point in the journey of Willow, I'm just mad at her all the time right now. <laughs> but um, anyway, but that's just a failing of the writers, you know, it's not Alison Hannigan's fault. Um, and it's also kind of some, not to use witchy language here, since some of y'all might not know anything about that, but I think some of my aversion to Willow is kind of a shadow work thing. I think Willow, if I were to wake up in the body of any Buffy character based on who I'm most like, I'm probably most like Willow, honestly. <laughs> um, so yeah, I don't know. Anyway, let's move on with my notes for this episode. Okay. Another part that I wanted to point out, there was this moment that I really didn't like. I haven't even gotten into my notes yet. I'm still just looking at the episode guide. So I think there are a couple of moments that I just didn't like in this episode that like, you know, just not only did I not like them just for regular not liking them reasons, but they actually rubbed me the wrong way. And I thought were kind of offensive. And one of those things was, um, there was this moment where Fred was in like the train station. She was trying to leave and like escape before her parents saw her and she was just running away and she was in the train station and she was sitting on a bench next to a person that looked like he was probably experiencing homelessness. Like that's, that's what we're supposed to take away. You know, he had a bunch of bags around him and he was dirty and he was sitting on the bench next to her and she was talking to herself and he was looking around like he was scared of her and he got up and walked away. I don't like that for a few different reasons. One, I don't think it's accurate because I think if a person who was talking to themselves sat next to a, another, a person experiencing homelessness, I guarantee you that that person would probably strike up a conversation with Fred. You know, like I, I work in a public library, so I've, you know, I've had a lot of I mean, people that experience homelessness, like one of their homes is the library. The public library is one of their homes. That's an important community resource to have a library. I mean, it's not just to go check out books. It's, it's a place, it's a safe place for people to be, you know, it's kind of neutral territory for a lot of people that don't have homes and it's, and it's important. It's an important resource. Anyway, don't get me started on all that. But, um, I have in my experience, you know, 
99 times out of 100, a person that's experiencing homelessness is a very empathetic person, like sometimes um, more so than other people that have homes, because they have been through a lot. They're not going to be sitting on a bench next to a person that's talking to themselves. I mean, everybody's different, but likely they're not going to be, you know, put off by a person talking to themselves, sitting on a bench next to them, you know? They would probably engage with them or just ignore them or sit comfortably in silence next to them. So uh, that's just like the more personal, like, I don't think that's realistic. But the the real thing is the implications behind that are just really shitty. You know, like even a homeless person is scared of Fred right now. And... I don't like that implication at all. I think that's shitty. And obviously this is, you know, the whole point of my podcast is reviewing these episodes of television 20 years later. So obviously this episode is 20 years old at this point and it shows. There was also another moment where, um, I think I wrote down this quote, hold on, I'm not even at the right point in my notes, of course, because why would I be that organized? Oh, at one point, Fred's dad says to Lorne, who is just admitted to putting on some eyeliner or something, because they were talking about if he was wearing makeup, I don't know. And um, Fred's dad says to Lorne, we don't get a lot of guys who wear eyeliner, you know, like where he lives in Texas. And then he says, not for long anyway. And that was icky. Like... That really, like, oh, shit, you know, like, my reaction was, oh, like, that's painful. That is awful. And we're, and we're supposed to, like, you know, obviously, like, you know, characters that are shitty and say shitty things, you know, you can, you can kind of write it off sometimes as, well, we're not supposed to like that character. But this is Fred's dad, and we're supposed to love him. We're supposed to think that he is an awesome example of a father and blah, 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 but that he just has a little bit of funny backwards thinking because he lives in Texas. That shit was common 20 years ago, in case any of y'all are younger than me and don't remember. That shit was common back then. Um, thankfully, those kinds of comments are not super common in TV and movies anymore because that's pretty damn shitty. Um, what else did I highlight in this episode guide? I think I highlighted one other thing. Oh yeah. The episode ends with, um, Fred is like repainting her room. She's painting over all the quote unquote crazy scribbles that she has all over the walls. And I just highlighted, she literally erases the remnants of the fairy tale from her life. So it's, it's interesting as an out, al- if you think of it that way as an allegory of like, you know, she's created a fairy tale in which Angel comes in and saves her on a horse. I just didn't make the connection that it was like sort of a delusion that she was supporting because she didn't want to admit that all of this shit really happened to her. And I think that this is a breaking point for Fred. Like, I think from now on, we're really not going to get sort of the 
quote-unquote crazy aspects of Fred anymore. Like, hopefully that part of her character does still exist from now on, but I haven't watched Angel enough to, like, know if that's the case. Oh, I did highlight one other thing. Um, da, da, da. Oh, yes. <laughs> okay, yeah. That was just a reminder for myself later. I took a note. Um, so I don't need to bring that up yet. Um, okay, let's just get to my notes. Um, so, you know, the whole thing with Fred, like, being, like, super in love with Angel, I think that stops from now on because he was part of the fairy tale delusion for her. So that makes sense that she would just kind of, like, drop that whole thing from now on. So I hope that's the case because, you know, she ends up dating Gunn and then later Wesley. So, like, I don't know why they just wanted to put Fred with it romantically involved with every single male character on this show. I don't know, but whatever. Um, because Amy Acker is Joss Whedon's type, I think. I think that's why. Um, oh God, I wonder what if she's the actress? Cause you know, there was that letter that Joss Whedon's ex-wife put out about like the young actress that he had an affair with. And it's like, Oh God, who is it? <laughs> You know, I've always thought that it was probably Eliza Dushku, but it could have been Amy Acker too. I don't know. Anyway, I don't know. That's all just total conjecture on my part. Um, okay. Angel doesn't... Again, so... Not again, but... <laughs> At the beginning of both this episode and the Buffy episode that I'm going to talk about... Um, both Angel and Buffy have just seen each other off screen and we didn't get to see what happened. And both of them are like, I don't want to talk about it and I'm never going to talk about it. And that's how they get by with not like discussing what happened when they saw each other. But, um, there is this really funny scene at the very beginning of the episode. This was actually pretty good of like, um, Cordelia is, is Cordelia's trying to explain to Fred like the relationship dynamic between Buffy and Angel because like Wesley and Cordelia are reassuring Fred that like no they're not going to get back together or anything like that and I was afraid they were going to go into the whole well he he has this curse like how many times have we explained Angel's fucking curse let's not do that again but they didn't do that they actually, Cordelia started, like, pretending to be Buffy and, like, dramatically reenacting their relationship. <laughs> and then Wesley started um, pretending to be Angel, and they were just having this really funny exchange of, like, over-dramatizing Angel and Buffy's relationship, which, of course, is funny because their relationship was extremely dramatic and ridiculous. And Angel walks in during it, and he's like, yep, that's pretty much how it went. <laughs> so that was a really funny moment. And they even, like, went so far as to, like, at some point, when Angel said he didn't want to talk about it, Cordy was like, now we'll never, ever know. And Angel, as he's walking out of the room, said, that's right. So the writers were just, like, very, very clearly letting you know from the, the you know, perspective of both of these shows that they're never going to tell us what happened on this meeting between the two of them. <laughs> <laughs> Which I don't know if I would even care that much if it wasn't for them, you know, they doth protest us too much, you know what I mean? Um, let's see. Okay, 
I don't know how much I need to like talk about any of this. I did have to note that I kind of liked, you know what? The more I think about this episode, maybe I did like it. I think it just needed a little bit more time and care put into it, which is probably not the fault of the writer and director, considering considering that they were, at least as far as I know, I think they were two women. Um, it, yeah, anyway, so there was this moment where um, I kind of liked the scene with Lauren because Fred goes to talk to Lauren whenever she's running away because she finds out her parents are there looking for her um and he comes out and he makes a comment about um judge judy had just started i kind of love that lauren watches judge judy because <laughs> judge judy is kind of a favorite with a lot of um gay men and even though they weren't they weren't letting you know that lauren was gay but he was definitely queer coded you know at this point at this point in television, like, you really, I don't know what the deal was, but, like, I don't even necessarily know that they were trying to queer code Andrew at this point. Like, finally, Andrew came out as gay in the comics, but we don't get that at all. Like, he does still make comments every once in a while about women, you know? But both Andrew and Lauren are queer-coded, so it's nice that both of those characters are included in this episode. But anyway, so Lauren makes, like, a comment about watching Judge Judy, which I thought was cute. And I also liked that, you know, that episode that was, like, two or three weeks ago at this point, Lauren's bar got completely destroyed by Gunn's old, like, friends and family. His chosen family. His old friends and chosen family. Um kind of like destroyed that place with like fucking automatic weapons and shit and it was like everything's destroyed the bar's closed right now and it's not all fixed and there were a couple of little comments like why isn't this all fixed by now which i thought was i don't know i thought that was nice like kind of a wink wink because like in these types of shows like things are constantly getting destroyed and then they're fine the next day i mean all of sunnydale was destroyed by a demon biker gang like three weeks ago and it was fine the week after it all happened you know everything was put back together and everything's good now um so there were like little details like that in this episode that i liked um let's see what else do we have Oh, and I also loved how, like, Lorne has, like, a little moment because everybody else catches up with Lorne later after Fred has left and they're asking him questions like, did she come here? Have you seen her? And all that stuff. And Lorne just goes off on this little diatribe like, my bar is destroyed. Why does no one give a shit about me ever? And then he says, I'm not some sort of mystical vending machine here to spit out answers every time you waltz in here with a problem. So... So far, kind of my favorite episode with Lauren, maybe, because he stood up for himself and he's in a bathrobe drinking a cocktail and you can tell that he's depressed because his bar has to be closed because it was completely destroyed and all of that. One other thing I didn't like, though, is like there was this moment. I mean, I get that there would be like some beef between Gunn and Lorne because it wasn't Gunn that specifically tried to bring his old friends and chosen family to destroy his bar but you know Lauren blames him and Gunn feels responsible so I get that there would be like a little bit of bad blood 
you know, coming from Lorne that they might need to have a conversation. But at one, at the beginning of the scene, when they all go in there, Gunn says something like, I would understand if you don't want me to be here right now. And Lauren's like, yeah, I don't. And then he leaves. And it's just, it seemed a little, I don't know, just a little shitty. Like if it were, you know, some other random white character, it wouldn't seem shitty. But like the implications of like, the black man doesn't need to be here for this. Like, I might be reading too much into that. It might have had nothing to do with racial politics. But it's just, you know something that just kind of pings, especially because of that other comment that Fred's dad made that was really homophobic. It's like, I don't know. Anyway. Um, then there's that whole moment when Fred cried and when she saw her parents and it was so emotional, like she really fucking brought it home, man. And just like instantly I was in tears and I don't cry. I don't cry super easily, but I do kind of cry easily when it's Buffy stuff. I don't know what that is. I don't know. Something to do with like, I connect better to my emotions when there's fantasy involved. So uh, apparently I can just identify with Amy Acker's character. (laughs) Like I would have done the exact same thing if I had been stuck in a demon dimension for five years and I came back. I would have this very elaborate story surrounding it. I would have definitely covered the walls in weird writings and stuff. Like I wouldn't, I'm not as smart as she is like with all the science stuff, but yeah, I I definitely relate to Fred more than any other character on Angel. There's some mantis monsters. Turns out Fred's parents are okay at demon fighting. They kind of accept the whole thing pretty well. They decide to tell them the truth. Um, Cordelia is on nurse duty. There's this weird little moment where like, it's Angel's turn to get his wounds treated by Cordelia after the demon fight. And he's, she's like, okay, next up, multiple stab wounds. Like, and she's like taking off her gloves to change into a new pair of gloves. And it's very cute and professional, um, and funny. And Angel just kind of, like, jumps up and, like, excitedly, like, dances over to the other side of the room to get his wounds treated by Cordelia. I'm like, what is that little moment? Um, It's just little things like that are really fun about Angel's character on Angel. But this is a side of Angel that was never, ever present on Buffy. Ever. Like, we didn't even really get, like, Angel making jokes on Buffy. Like he just was not allowed to be anything other than just love struck for Buffy at all times or super evil and obsessed with Buffy, depending on if he had a soul or not at the time. So, I mean, those little things I think are cute on Angel, but it's also just like, well, they obviously didn't have his character very figured out if he's, he's a different person on the Angel show. And I know I'm always talking about that, but holy shit, you guys, I've almost been talking about Angel for half an hour. <laughs> I've been doing pretty good at keeping my Angel discussion short, but this episode is different just because it's focusing on one of my favorite characters. So like anytime that kind of thing happens, I'm going to talk about Angel more. That's just how it is. So Fred decides she's going to go home. She leaves with her family and she's in like a cab 
with her family when she discovers something about the demons. She goes back because she has information that they need to know and she helps them because she was feeling like, well, I don't know what I'm doing here. Like she goes through this like super cute little touching moment of like describing each of the people to her family. She's like Cordelia's the heart of the group and guns, the muscle and angels, the this and Wesley's the brains. And she's like, and I'm, and she doesn't understand where she fits in with them. And that's when she decides to leave with her family and try to go back to her life. But you know what? I'm talking myself into thinking this is a really great episode, actually. <laughs> Looking back on it from an hour ago when I watched it. Um, yeah. I don't know. And then, because it makes total sense. Like, she feels like she doesn't really belong in the group. And there's actually this whole scene where everybody's sitting around talking about, you know, how much they're going to miss Fred and stuff like that. And it actually feels like a lived in kind of real scene of everybody talking together. You know, it feels they, they have their feet up and they're just kind of talking about Fred and, you know, and there's this little moment where Wesley kind of reveals about his own childhood. Cause they were talking about just like parents in general. And Wesley's like, yeah, they weren't totally stifling and blah, blah, blah. And he says all this sort of like tragic string of stuff. Um, and I just wrote, Wesley's childhood is showing, which I guess is kind of, you know, foreshadowing the next episode. I think the next episode is going to be about Wesley and his like really awful relationship with his father, which I remember that being like a good character building episode for Wesley. So I'm kind of looking forward to that. So maybe, maybe Angel's getting good. Like so far this season, I have not thought so. Um, Oh, I liked the quote from Angel at one point when they were sitting around talking about Fred when she had left and hadn't come back yet. And he's like, she was this nice, quiet kind of crazy. I found that soothing. <laughs> and I was like, yes, I love that, actually. I hope that I'm that kind of soothing to someone. Because <laughs> I'm also, like, in person, I'm extremely quiet. But also everything that I do say is like extremely weird and people normally don't understand me. But um, yeah, I'm basically Fred, except I'm not as cute as her and I'm not as smart as her. <laughs> um, bugs everywhere. I don't know why I wrote that note. Oh, because all, all the bugs, like these big like mantisy bug creatures were like the monsters of this episode and they all were like looking for the eggs. So there were a whole bunch of them and Fred saved the day and whatever. Um, But I liked what she said when she came back. She was like, I can't go home with you. Like talking to her parents. I can't go home with you. I can't just move into my old bedroom and pretend that the last five years didn't happen because they did. I'm different now, you know? So it was just like several different little moments for Fred in this episode of her just like facing her reality. So yeah, I'm coming back around on it. I'm just like totally into it now. I somehow talked myself into it. I think there were just like so many kind of schlocky moments and then there were like a, those little time those little moments that just pissed me off that like yeah i think the skeleton of a great episode was all there 
they just needed more time to work on it. Which it could have even just been like TV schedules in general didn't support them having the right time to really work on this. You know, like part of the reason why episodes that are written and directed by Joss Whedon on either Angel or Buffy turn out to be so fucking tight and good and flawless in a lot of ways, not totally flawless, but why they end up being so amazing is because he can take the time to really get his episodes right. Whereas other like guest directors and writers or whatever, they've probably just, they've got time limits. They've got to get in and get, get whatever done that they can. So they can't make it perfect. You know, they don't get to be like a fucking alter or whatever the fucking word is. Um, anyway, let's move on. So summation, I liked this episode, question mark. <laughs> um, I liked, or no, I was going to start talking about the Bechtel cast and then I just said liked or Bechtel test. <laughs> I was thinking about the Bechtel cast, which is a podcast that I listen to. Um, words. It's great that I have them so under control when I'm not even halfway through this episode yet. Wonderful. Um, I shouldn't have had that second glass of wine with dinner. <laughs> Um, so this episode does pass, pass the Bechtel test. Um, one other, just like a little thing, the, when Fred was hugging everyone goodbye, when she thought she was leaving that part of the episode, it was actually really sweet. Her hugs with everyone, they seemed really genuine. They seemed to match the relationship that she had to each character, her, her interactions, you know, speaking of Be Bechtel test, her interactions, Fred's interactions with Cordelia throughout this episode seemed less weird and strained. Um, I don't know. Yeah. If it's too bad, like I doubt we'll ever see this particular writer and director ever again, because I've never seen their names on anything Buffy related before. Not that I pay a lot of attention to that stuff, but um, these this team of people, whether they were a team or they were just thrown together, they have great potential, I think. So anyway, whatever. Let's talk about the Buffy episode. That's what you guys are really here for. Life Serial. So let me get out to my Bite Me episode guide. I highlighted several things in this too. Oh, the, uh, the, <laughs> I keep going back to this. The thing that I had highlighted in the Angel episode guide that I had said, I'll come back to that. Um, there was this stupid little offhand comment in the script, which was probably put in there by Joss Whedon. Because he often would do like little script punch-ups and things, even if someone else wrote the episode. Um, but there was like this little moment where... Fred's mom was talking to Cordelia about how much Fred's dad likes the, likes alien movies. And they're obviously talking about the alien franchise. And she was like, yeah, I mean, they were okay, but I fell asleep during the last one, which was just like, I noted it as like, oh, that's Joss Whedon, you know, how he gets, you guys might not know, but he gets really fixated on if he doesn't have complete control over a project that he's doing. He wrote 
the original screenplay for Alien Resurrection. And then, like, a lot of things got changed in the final cut or whatever. And so he's, like, completely absolved himself of, like having anything to do with that movie because they changed parts of it. Kind of like how he is always like shit talking the Buffy movie because he didn't have complete control over everything and he didn't like how everything was done. So he's a fucking control freak and I noted it and um, Nikki Stafford had mentioned it in um, the episode guide as well. Anyway, whatever. Okay. Buffy. Life Serial, the um, episode summary, according to Nikki Stafford, the Troika, Troika, I think that's um, just the trio, test Buffy with a series of challenges while she tries to find a job. And then I'm just going to read the little highlighted parts that I highlighted in the episode guide. I thought this was kind of insightful. In a season where the other characters are learning to accept adult responsibility, the super nerds, which I don't think they're super, but okay, represent kids who are stuck in arrested development. And then another one. This was interesting. Like, I had never thought about it this way before, but I might agree with this statement, kind of, in a sick way. So this is, um, she was talking about the, like, the relationship between Buffy and Spike right now. And referring to Spike, this is the part I highlighted. In a way, he's a perversion of Giles. He's older than she is and therefore carries more wisdom, yet unlike Giles, he won't lecture her or be disappointed in her. I find that interesting because the main thing that's going on right now with Buffy and her friends and whether or not she's connecting with people. Like, first of all, she's very depressed, but she is kind of avoiding connecting with anyone that had something to do with bringing her back. You know, like she's always going to have a good relationship with Dawn. She's always going to have a good relationship to Giles, but like, I think she is feeling guilty around him right now because she wants to be doing better than she is and he's seeing her you know um but the only person that she allows to see her right now is spike and it's because he's he's someone that she doesn't necessarily respect um it's he is someone that she can relate to on a certain level but it's also like she's seeking him out because he's not someone that she needs to respect she can be comfortable around him because she doesn't have to feel bad that she's not doing better around him you know but that's sort of like looking at spike as a perversion of her relationship with giles like he's older and wiser but he's not going to judge her that's interesting. I will take that on. Stay tuned to see if my thoughts on that situation develop or I forget about it immediately. That's likely what will happen because that's how I am. Um, oh, it's a Halloween episode next episode. Nice. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. I just got distracted by the episode guide. Okay. Let's get into my actual notes. Um, 
So Buffy, the beginning of the episode, Buffy shows up with a bucket of chicken, which don't even get me started. But like, first of all, why would she just show up without calling with dinner? Like she left town to go see Angel. She didn't tell anyone how long she was going to be. Why would she assume that they would be waiting for her for dinner? You know, but whatever. Um, One thing I liked, which was just a little touch that I noticed because I happened to pause to take some notes. Um, One of the tables at the dining room or one of the chairs at the dining room table was like duct tape back together. So I remember one of the chairs breaking in that episode, like the last episode, I think. So that was a nice touch that like, again, like these two episodes, both the Angel episode and the Buffy episode showed signs of previous destruction with Lauren's bar in the Angel episode and this chair being duct taped back together. I wonder if we'll see it again. Um, Willow makes a really stupid breast joke, which Giles makes a face at. And I don't know if we're supposed to think that he, I don't know if we're supposed to assume that Giles is making a face at the stupid breast joke that Willow made because he's being, we're supposed to think he's being judgy about her being a lesbian or, I mean, I took it as Giles is making that face because it's like, that was a stupid joke, Willow. Gross. Why did you make it? Anyway, that's all I'm going to say about that. (laughs) Again, Buffy's not going to talk about Angel. She doesn't want to talk about it. She's like, I'd like to just keep this one to myself if that's okay. And everybody just lets her drop it, which is not characteristic of everyone, but whatever. And then immediately, so she sits down with this bucket of chicken. (laughs) She's been home for two seconds. And Giles is like, we've been talking about what you're going to do. Like what you're going to do with your life. And then they're all looking at her. It's Dawn, Willow, Tara, and Giles all at the table. So everyone that's living in the house right now. And they're just all looking at her like, what do you want to do with your life, Buffy? And she's like, uh, (laughs) but she actually, you know, seems kind of on top. She's like, I've been thinking about that. It's like, well, I can't really, it's too late to register for school because, you know, I was dead whenever registration was open, you know? And so she decides she's going to audit classes with Tara and Willow the next day. So then we get like a scene with the trio and they're, they've got this van now that they've tricked out with all this equipment and they're going to spy on Buffy. They're going to fuck with Buffy. They have a plan starting this time tomorrow. They're going to fuck with Buffy. <clears throat> Excuse me. Just choked in my own spit. Okay. Had to note because the thing in a lot of television and movies, but especially in Buffy If there is like a, you know, a class, whatever the topic in the class is, is relevant to the episode. So I wrote down, because I couldn't really understand what they were talking about. And so Buffy goes to a sociology class with Willow. And what they're talking about makes no sense to me until I write it down and stare at it for 10 minutes. So I'm going to like read for you some of the quotes of the things that they're talking about in the sociology class. And then I'm going to try to like understand it. We'll see if it works. 
So the topic of the class is social construction of reality. And then he asks his students, the teacher asks his students to define it. And one of the students says, well, it's basically two opposing theories. One, that the externality of social reality is fr from individuals. I don't think I even wrote it down correctly. External, ex externality of social reality. Okay. That, so I think what this means is that social reality exists whether or not exists outside of individuals. I don't know. I don't think I even understand it. And then the other theory, like the, the other, the flip side of that is that each individual participates in the construction of their own reality. So I think what that is, is kind of like a perception equals reality thing. So like the way that you view, yeah, you have control over your reality and you your perception of your reality is part of the reality versus reality exists and how you perceive it doesn't matter because reality is an objective truth. I think, I think that's what this argument is saying, but I still don't totally understand. And first of all, I call bullshit on all of these students being that engaged and using that kind of language because that's like fucking textbook language that they're all using. Um, and then my next note was Willow not helpful because like Buffy, understandably, like everybody's like, right. Everyone in the whole class is like raising their hands and like getting into it. And like, everybody's having such a good time and they're so intellectual and they're saying all this fucking textbook shit. And Buffy's looking confused as fuck. And she says to Willow, I'm not really understanding any of this. And instead of Willow, like reassuring her in some kind of realistic way or telling her, yeah, I mean, we're really far into the subject so far. So like, you know, it's, it's totally understandable if you don't understand. I don't know. She could have said something reassuring, but instead she just says, oh, you just kind of have to go with the flow, man. And then another thing that I wrote down is that was said in the class because I was trying to understand it. Maybe I'll understand it now. Probably not. Social phenomena don't have unproblematic objective existences. They have to be interpreted and given meaning by those who encounter them. So that's more the argument of each individual participates in the construction of their own reality, right? So that just, I think that just means that like, what is the deal with social phenomena though? What does it have to do with socializing? Or maybe it's just like the general idea of like sociology, social phenomena, sociology. Um, so existence doesn't exist on its own. It has to be, it has to be perceived and understood and interpreted by people in order for it to, it to exist. So I seem to kind of like, I'm, it's ringing a bell because I did have sociology classes and this was one of the main like questions of sociology was like, you know, is a chair really a chair? Like, what is a chair? You know, all of that sort of thing. Um, okay, my next note is they fuck with her. Okay, let's try to relate that though. Like, because that's supposed to relate to 
this episode, right? The big problem that I have with this episode, so throughout the whole episode, like, Warren and Jonathan and Andrew are spying on Buffy and they're fucking with her. But most of the things that they're doing to fuck with her, like, all of the things that they're doing to fuck with her, are things that only they and Buffy are perceiving the reality of. So they, they're creating a social reality for Buffy and for some reason they can see, so they're fucking with her sense of time at one point, they're fucking with her sense of time in another point, and then they're creating demons that I think maybe didn't, were only visible to her and them. So the social reality here was shared between the three of them and Buffy and everyone else wasn't sharing that social reality because it seemed like the construction workers didn't see the monsters that Buffy was fighting at the construction site and no one else was perceiving Buffy's time loops at the magic box except for her and of course Jonathan Andrew and um, Warren and then no one else was perceiving the weird fluctuations of time that Buffy was having at the school. So, okay, I guess it was like the argument that I was like, is like, how could they with like cameras and stuff see the effect that their spells were having on her if it was, if it was just about how she was perceiving what was happening, you know? Like, how would they know that she's looping? Because they were definitely reacting as if they knew exactly what she was going through in the time loops. And they were seeing her in her time whenever the time was speeding up and slowing down and all that. I don't know. So my question was, why could they see it the way that she could see it? Because... But maybe this whole explanation in the sociology class was supposed to help explain why they could see it the way that she could see it because they were accepting her social construction of reality. I don't know. I don't really know what I'm talking about. I'm going to move on. Okay. So let's go to Buffy at the construction site. She's talking about like what had happened the day before I skipped over the whole, like time started speeding up and like she was having little glitches where like she blacked out and like, Tara just like totally left her in the dust and didn't seem to notice that she was like, cause what did it look like from her point of view? Like, we'll never know what it looked like from Tara's point of view, but it should have looked to her like Buffy was just like spacing out or something. And then she just like left her there, which anyway, whatever, moving on. So the next day, like, she's like, okay, well I tried school. <laughs> I tried auditing classes and that didn't work. So then she hangs out with Xander at a construction job. She's like, okay, I'll try this. Maybe construction is my thing. She's just trying on different identities, trying to figure out where she wants to be, what she wants to do with her life. Cause Giles told her she had to figure it out. And she's explaining to Xander the whole thing with the, um, time fluctuation thing. And she's like, talking about evil lint because she found like the little device that was on her. Was that a camera? Was that the thing that was making her whatever? 
it was both. I don't know. But she, so she was like, I don't know. It was like evil Lent or something. And Xander just says something like, maybe you shouldn't bring things up like that around your new coworkers. And I wrote, Xander is not helpful. Just like I wrote earlier, Willow is not helpful. Um, he introduces her to the people that she's going to be working with and they're super sexist towards her and it's awful. Um, the monsters that show up turn to goo and everybody acts like she just like went insane and started destroying things and like attacking them. So they obviously didn't see the monsters. Um, and Xander doesn't really back her up. Xander shows up and kind of just takes her outside or she kind of storms off or something because he doesn't defend her at all. And she just kind of storms off and he follows her and he fires her. But then he also tells her he believes her. He's like, oh, I believe you. It's like, but he wasn't willing to say that he believed her in front of his friends. I don't know. This was kind of triggering to me because this just reminds me of so many instances in my life where a friend or a boyfriend or just, you know, any person of the boy persuasion that didn't back me up when they were around their friends or acted differently around me when they're acted differently towards me when their friends were around that whole thing. It's a thing. And that was awful. Like Xander was not being supportive of Buffy at all. Like, except privately, privately, he was like, oh, I totally believe you when she was talking about the demons and that they existed and all that stuff. I don't know. It's everybody's just sort of written Buffy off as being off right now. And yeah, I guess it's a whole social construction of reality. Like everybody is sort of like, they just want Buffy to tell them that she's fine and that for it to be true. And that's it. They don't want to actually face the reality of the situation. Um, Buffy shows up. So this is like, I guess, the day after the construction site job or something. I don't know. Buffy decides she's going... She earlier had told Xander that she doesn't want to do retail, that she'd like rather be dead again than do retail. And she shows up at the magic box because, you know, construction didn't work and um, school didn't work. So let's try retail. So she decides to work in the magic box and... Um, I liked when she said, um, so Giles had like piles and piles of piles of books all over the table to do research for the different things that are happening to her right now. All of the things that the trio are doing to her. And she, she says, is this all research or some kind of stress test for the table? <laughs> Which I thought was funny. Guess what guys? Minty mug sighting. First minty mug sighting Giles's minty mug since the beginning of the season like we haven't seen it at all in season six this is the first time so yay for that um so while she's at the magic box day three of the trio fucking with her so they're all taking turns like each one of them has a specific test for Buffy and they're like scoring it to see, like, who does the best job fucking with Buffy. Whatever. Um, so day three, they're there, and they start asking questions. Um, 
one of them is like, why is the Slayer here anyway? She's a student. She's a construction worker. Now she's some sort of selling stuff person. Oh, it was Andrew that said that. <laughs> now she's some sort of selling stuff person. It's like she's completely without focus. Um, Willow. No, that's Warren. Because I have a W. Usually that's for Willow. Warren says, um, at one point, like, part of the spell that Jonathan's doing. So he's the one that does the time, creates the time loop for Buffy in the magic box. And, um, he has Andrew and Warren hold hands as part of the like spell or whatever. And Andrew gets weird about it. And Warren looks at him and says, you know what homophobia really means about you? That was just like a little bit of a, so simultaneously it was a little nod to the fact that Andrew is a queer coded character. This is the first time, I think this is the only second episode that we've even seen them all together in, but, um, this is the first nod to a possible, you know, a possible nod to the fact that they might be queer coding Andrew. Um, so there's that. My next note was Giles not helpful because Throughout the whole magic box scenario, Giles seems to not, he, he almost seems like a, what's it called in video games? NPC. Is that right? Non-playing character. It's essentially a computerized character that like, you can't really interact with it. It just does the same things over and over. So no matter what Buffy says during these time loops, Giles acts like he can't hear her. And I guess it's just because that particular moment, the only moment that she interacts with Giles during the time loop, he wasn't really paying attention to her. So I guess, I think that's the explanation for why he doesn't act like he's listening to her, because I think that exchange, he wasn't listening to her in the moment. So therefore, every single time, no matter what she does, he's not paying attention to her in that moment. So I don't know. That was weird though, because the other people in the time loop she could interact with, and it would not be that they were necessarily saying the same thing, no matter what, like what she was doing was affecting them in each time loop, but not Giles for whatever reason. I don't know if there is reasoning for that or not, but just noting it. Um, it was pretty funny just watching the time loop stuff. It was pretty funny. I think it was the best. I think Jonathan wins <laughs> the contest of fucking with Buffy. I think she wins. He wins. And then we get the whole, okay, best Buffy gif ever when she takes the shot of whiskey and she just goes, blah, blah. <laughs> Um, I decided to count how many times we see Buffy take a drink and then make that noise. Six. So if you were drinking along with Buffy while watching this episode, you'd be taking six shots or gulps, because at one point she's drinking straight out of the bottle of whiskey. I wouldn't advise it. I do have a shot of whiskey in front of me that I had poured because I usually take one while I'm talking to you guys, but I feel a little drunk from the wine that I drank at dinner. So I think I'm not going to drink the whiskey right now. 
Because <laughs> I actually, I have to work at 8 o'clock in the morning tomorrow, which is super early for me. And it's almost 11 o'clock and my bedtime was 11. It's 10.53 and my bedtime was 11. That's not happening. But um, I'll probably just be going to bed at midnight like I usually do. But I'm not going to take that shot of whiskey because that's a bad idea. As I was drinking my wine out of a mason, not like a full mason jar, but like one of those like little tiny ones. But still, I drank two full glasses of that and I feel a little wine drunk. So no whiskey for me tonight. <laughs> um, but just in case you want to drink along with Buffy while watching this episode, she takes six drinks. Um, I think like three of them are shots and the rest are just chugs from a bottle. Maybe only two of them were actual shots. Anyway, doesn't matter. Um, let's see. Okay, so I do I do want to give a serious moment to Buffy versus Spike. <laughs> Buffy and Spike in this episode. So this is kind of a significant little tweak. I was almost going to say turning point, but it's not really a turning point in their relationship, but it's just like a little tweak. Like, so at this point, so it's kind of a callback to, do you guys remember that episode? I think it was crush was what it was called. I, I could be wrong about that, but the first episode where Buffy realizes that Spike has a crush on her and she ends up having to go with him to some sort of stakeout because he was telling her about some vamp nest or something. So she goes with him on the stakeout and he reaches into his glove compartment and tries to offer her um, a flask of whiskey. And she's like, ew, no. And she's just like appalled. I think that this scene is kind of a callback to that moment. Because at that point, she was absolutely like grossed out by even the thought of drinking with Spike. And now, now that she's resurrected from the dead and it's, you know, six months later at this point or whatever it is, probably more, she's, that same flask is here and she's pouring shots for her and Spike to drink together. And she's just sort of like drinking in solace with him, kind of talking to him about the crappiness of her last few days of trying out all these different, because in her mind, it's like, she's trying to figure out what to do with her life and nothing is working. Like nothing feels right. Um, you know, and so why I say this is a significant moment between the relate in the relationship between Spike and Buffy, it's not a turning point, but it, it it's kind of, it's, it's, it's a pivot point maybe. <laughs> Because this is the first time, and I've been paying attention to the relationship dynamics between Spike and Buffy, especially from the beginning of season six, because he's been somebody that has seen her and he's been kind of there for her and he's been empathetic towards her and all of that stuff. But this is where it starts to turn because as they're like drinking together and everything, Spike starts in. He hasn't done it until now. And he is a master manipulator. He knows exactly when to twist in there. You know, it's like, oh, she's drinking with me now. She's intoxicated. 
and she's talking about what to do with her life, I can kind of get in there and start weaseling in. It's very subtle, but I do think it's intentional on the writer's part. So what he does, like, what did I write here? She's downstairs at his crypt. Yeah, that's where they are. Um, which I just noticed, like, where are they? Oh, they're, he's taken her to the underground of his like crypt. Like it's weird enough that she's going there specifically to hang out with him, which she's never done before. It's only after she resurrected from the dead. Now that she's undead, she's going to visit him in his crypt, but now she's downstairs in his crypt. So I just think that's important to note. Um, and then I wrote his first manipulation, start here, very subtle. Okay, here's what he says to her, which is manipulative, but it's, again, it's subtle. Like some, some of you, like I say it out loud, you might not think that it's manipulative, but coming from Spike, it is. Believe me, believe it. He says, so she's talking about like, you know, how it didn't work at school. It didn't work at, at, um, construction. It didn't work at the magic box, blah, blah, blah. She's, she's complaining about all the shit that she's been going through the last few days. And he says, you're not a school girl. You're not a shop girl. You're a creature of the darkness like me. Try on my world. See how good it feels. So yeah, it doesn't sound too bad at this point. It's going to get more and more insidious until it just, you know, it's going to build up until he fucking attempts to rape her. This is the first, like he said shit like this to her before, you know, back, back before she died. But you know, every time she's always like, fuck off you asshole. And then she starts hitting him or something, you know, she doesn't let him say shit like this to her, but this time she does not only because she's intoxicated, but because she's starting to believe him, you know, there's a piece of the dark side that she wants to experience with Spike, which fine, like that's not necessarily the problematic part. Whether or not she wants to have some sort of sexual relationship with him is not the problematic part. The problematic part is that he is abusive towards her. And this is where it starts. I'm just saying, I'm noting it. This is where it starts. Even though it's very subtle at this point. So subtle, it doesn't even necessarily seem abusive, you know? Um, our first time meeting Clem is in this episode. Yay for Clem. I love him. At this point, I think they didn't know that we were going to love him because he's not like cheeky, innocent, funny Clem. At this point, he's kind of mean when we first meet him. He says some shit about Buffy's skin being so tight. I don't even know how you can look at her or whatever, which is just gross and rude. And Clem wouldn't say that kind of thing about anybody, but they didn't know who he was yet. Whatever. We get the kitten poker scene. Um, Spike is trying totally ineffectually to help find, help Buffy find out about these, whoever's doing this shit to her. And this is an important, this is an important point. Holy crap. How much wine did I drink? Um, this is an important point too, that, um, 
I just totally forgot what the important point was. <laughs> oh my god, what is happening? Kitten poker, an important point. Trio arguing about James Bond. Oh, okay, yes. So throughout this episode, Buffy's sort of noticing the van, right? And like, just kind of like, what's going on with that? You know? And she's just sort of distracted in the beginning of the episode. And then at this point, at the end of the episode, when she's super trashed, like I am right now, <laughs> um, she's super trashed, trashed. So she's, if she were sober Buffy, if she were totally with her wits about her Buffy, she would have defeated them in this episode. She would have defeated Andrew, Jonathan, and Warren in this episode. She would have figured it out. But no one's really working with her very effectively. Like, Giles is researching, but he's casting such a wide net that he's completely ineffectual. And they don't come right out and let you know that everybody... I feel like not everybody's really believing Buffy that someone's trying to fuck with her. I think they're just putting on the show that they believe her, that they're researching things, stuff like that. They're not outright telling her they don't believe her, but they might not. I don't even know. So, like, no one's really helping her figure this out. And she, even though it's obvious because they're dumb and they're following her around in a big black van that she sees everywhere that she goes. Um, I don't even know why they're following her at this point while they're, while she's at the bar because they're not fucking with her anymore. They're done with their tests on her, but they're still following her for some reason. Anyway, the point is. If she hadn't been drunk, if she had been totally with her, all of her Buffy wits about her, she would have discovered them in this moment and it all would have been over. But that is the point of season six. They are the villains. Well, they're not really the villains. Willow's the villain. But they, you think that they're the villains throughout the season because, and they're only allowed to keep fucking with Buffy because she's not... She's not effective right now. She's not a hundred percent. She's depressed. No one's really working with her. Everyone's kind of isolated from each other for different reasons. Cause they don't want to know her friends don't want to know how she's really feeling. So they're not really like engaging with her. And if everybody was working together, like they normally do, and they were all at full strength, including, and especially Buffy, then the trio would have been defeated in this episode. And that's the whole point. Like a lot of people talk about like, I guess they're missing the point where people just talk about how annoying they find the trio, which I don't find them annoying. I think they're hilarious for the most part. There's a lot of like problematic jokes, but besides that, I think they're hilarious. Um, I think they're fun and nerdy and hilarious and I love them. So I'm glad we get to have them because they're one of the only like non-tragic parts of season six, you know? Um, but I mean, even though they kind of are tragic too, but the whole point is that they're not a foe. They're not an evil force. They're not, you know, they don't have any power. They shouldn't even be able to fuck with Buffy. And this episode is the first indicator where they're like, we went up against Buffy and we lived. <laughs> 
you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, just because she was fucking wasted, that's the only reason why you guys made it. Um, so yeah, that's the whole point is that everybody's so angsty in season six that they can't even defeat Warren, Andrew, and Jonathan, you know? Okay, I wanted to say, like, Buffy at one point, so she's talking to Spike while she's still drunk, and um, they're leaving the bar. And she's mad at Spike because he wasn't able to help her with his stupid kitten poker antics. <laughs> and she says, the only person I can stand to be around is a neutered vampire who cheats at kitten poker. And I thought that was interesting that, like, she's she's basically telling him that he's the only person she can stand to be around. But Spike is not reacting to it like like he's super happy that she's, you know, I feel like the old Spike would have been like, wow, I'm the only person she can stand to be around. I just feel like there should have been a reaction there when she said that, that, you know, I don't know, James Marsters maybe was off that day or maybe they took the wrong take because he's usually really good at like little micro expressions and stuff. So I feel like normally you would see him like, wow, she really likes me. And then he would go back to like, whatever, you know, you'd see that little glimmer, but you didn't see it. Anyway, just saying. Um, I liked it. So, you know, for as much as I'm going to be talking about how abusive Spike is and shit like that, um, I like to remind you guys that I still love him. I still would totally fall for his bullshit if I were Buffy. <laughs> um, and one thing I like about him is how, like, adaptable he is. So, like, Buffy storms out of the bar. She's just, you know, yelled at him, kind of. And she storms out of the bar and he looks like he's really mad for some reason. I don't understand why he looks like he's really mad, but he looks like he's really pissed. And he follows her out of the bar. Maybe he's just annoyed with her because she's so drunk. I don't know. But he follows her out of the bar. He's all pissed off and he almost runs into her. And she's staring at a van. She's staring at the van. And she's like, that van. And he immediately switches from being like super pissed off to, if you want to steal a van, love, I'm with you. But we have the motorcycle. We do have the motorcycle. Um... <laughs> And I love that he just immediately switches, you know, like for all of his faults, Spike is, he's very lovesick. He's very Knight of Cups, if you know Tarot. He is all about the person that he loves, the person he's, that he's obsessed with. And like, even though he's angry at the moment, he's still going to go after her, number one. And number two, he will immediately steal a van for her if that's what she wants. <laughs> Like, even though she's drunk and it would make no sense to steal a van right now. And he even, even Spike would know that that makes no sense. He doesn't care because he would do it if she wanted to. And that is why he's so irresistible. <laughs> um, so I like that little moment. Uh, my next note was, they are so dumb. Jonathan in demon suit. Buffy is drunk. Um, yeah, that was just kind of to remind myself that, like, the trio they're super dumb and she would defeat them immediately if she were at full strength right now. Not only if she were not drunk, but also, you know, like I said before, if she were hundred percent Buffy in general, the next scene we get, um, 
Buffy's at home. She's just thrown up a bunch and Giles is taking care of her. He like has a glass of water. He's waiting for her when she gets out of the bathroom and he's really sweet. You know, um, I don't think we've ever gotten a conversation between Giles and Buffy in Buffy's bedroom. I mean, it would have felt weird and inappropriate if that ever happened in any other context, but right now he's staying with them. And, um, she's just saying, basically she's saying, I'm fucking up right now, Giles. And he's very sweet. He's like, no, you're not. You don't have to figure everything out all at once. Life and everything, which contradicts the fact that like, as soon as she gets home from seeing Angel, he's like, what are you going to do with your life? And now he's like, you don't have to figure it out all at once. But in any case, this is a really sweet moment because he's telling her, you don't have to figure it out all at once. I don't think you're messing up. Someone, someone's been messing with you, you know? So he's validating the fact that someone's messing with her, but I don't even know if he entirely believes that someone's messing with her because he's not really taking it that seriously or else everybody's distracted by their own shit right now. They're not really being effective at helping her, even if they do believe her. I don't know. And, um... So he's, you know, being really sweet in this moment. He gives her a check to help her with all of her financial issues that she's having right now. And it's really sweet, except that. So Buffy starts saying all this shit. Like she's really trying to, you know, express her gratitude to him. And she's saying, you know, thank you. It feels a little bit like mom's here, you know, I feel safe knowing that you're always going to be here. And the episode ends with Giles kind of smiling at her as she's saying that. And then his face turns to, oh shit. Like you can tell that he's like, oh crap, I'm enabling her. And in normal circumstances, like if we were to if we were seeing like an actual father daughter relationship where like the daughter's 20 years old, she just was out drinking. She doesn't know what to do with her life. She's financially dependent on her parent when she needs to start taking the reins in her own life. Cause that's what we're supposed to see this situation as, but that's not the scenario here. We've got a vampire slayer whose full-time job is to fight the forces of darkness and she doesn't get paid for it, but her watcher does. I know I talk about that too much, so I will stop here. But this plot point, this is the first little glimmer of Giles. Like you can tell he's like, oh, I'm enabling her. And I don't like that. I don't like that. That's the narrative that we're going with, but it is. And that's the way the episode ends. So Let's go to my ratings for the episode. We actually do have an outfit of the episode this week. In fact, almost every outfit that Buffy wears to the different like things that she's trying to do with her life in this episode are cute. When she decides to try to be a student again, she wears like, I don't like the pants because they're like low rise, wide belt, whatever pants, but they were, they seem pretty nondescript for the most part. I don't know what shoes she was wearing because the pants were like super bell bottomy. So I don't even know if you could tell what shoes she was wearing, but they were just like black pants. And it was like a, um, strapless flower pattern, like bustier with like a satin trim at the cups on the top. It was like 
very corsety, but not a real corset corset, but kind of, it might've been a corset corset. Anyway, it was like a beautiful flower pattern corset, but it had like a black, she had a black cardigan over it. So it looked like a professional going to school outfit, but then you take the cardigan off and it looks sexy. It was nice. And the necklace she was wearing was kind of a, almost looked like a bolo, but it was like the necklace version of a bolo tie. Because <laughs> it was like a chain that came together at like a cameo. And then there were like little chain strings that came down on the bottom of the cameo, like into the, into her cleavage, into her very tiny, skinny girl cleavage. <laughs> um, but it was a nice outfit. It just like really looked good all together. And then her, so that's the outfit of the episode, but her construction outfit was super cute too. Cause she was, she had like little, like pigtails that were half pulled through. So there were like little loops um, and then she had a daisy tucked into one of the little pigtails and she was just wearing like, you know, bootcut jeans and like, um, like a nondescript, like black shirt with the sleeves cut off. You know, it was like a, a very practical construction worker outfit, <laughs> but it was also cute because of the pigtails and the little daisy. And it was just very sweet. Like, even though Buffy's super depressed right now, she's still putting together a good outfit, you know? And then her um, Magic Box retail outfit was also... Everything was just, like, very appropriate to what she was doing, I felt. <laughs> um, so the retail outfit was, like, a brown flowy skirt with, like, a black flowy top that had, like, a... It was kind of a weird peasanty, like early two thousands top, but it wasn't a terrible one. And like little kitten heels, it was actually kind of cute. Every outfit that she wore in this episode was kind of cute. I don't even remember what anyone else was wearing. It was just Buffy. <laughs> and later, when she was hanging out with Spike, she was still wearing that top, but she changed into jeans. So I thought that was a nice touch too, because that you know was an easy way to visually tell that this was just later in the day. And she changed out of like, you know, the professional part of this outfit. She was still wearing the top, but she changed out of the, the skirt and the kitten heels and she was just wearing jeans. And then, I don't know that I love little details like that. And I just think it worked well. Object of the episode, um, in the trio's van, they have like a, <laughs> a patchwork blanket made out of different animal prints, like all fake, of course, but like zebra next to leopard next to tiger. And it's just so uniquely late nineties, early two thousands. Like I used to have a, a rug like that in my bedroom. It was like, literally it was a patchwork of different animal prints and it was just so stupid. And I love that blanket. It's so dumb. I would definitely use it if I had it. So that is my object of the episode. Quote of the episode. I mean, there weren't any like super awesome quotes. There were like just like little snicker funny moments or whatever. But I don't know. I think Maybe the quote is when Buffy asked Giles, is this all research or some kind of stress test for the table? 
<laughs> it's not even like that great of a quote, but it was funny. Um, MVP of the episode. Okay. Hmm. I don't know. Everybody was really kind of terrible in this episode. I, you know what? I'm going to give it to Buffy. Let me actually write it down this time. Cause last episode I was like, oh my God, I didn't write down any of these. I just said them and that's it. I'm going to give MVP to Buffy because I don't think she was doing anything wrong in this episode. She was trying, like when everybody asked her, what are you going to do with your life? She was like, well, I've been thinking about that. And like, she wants to find joy in life again. She's trying. And when that didn't work out, she had a, a binging night with Spike. That makes sense to me. And that was pretty much the whole episode. She's doing the best she can with, you know, limited mental resources right now. That's fine. I don't, yeah. So I'm giving it to Puffy. As far as like my five by five ratings, like out of five, how much did I enjoy this episode? I think it was really good. I think it's really effective. Um, I don't have many complaints. We didn't really get, we didn't see Dawn like, except in that first scene. We didn't see her at all in this episode. We barely got any Anya. Xander was a dick. Willow was a dick. Giles was sweet, but also kind of not totally getting it. Spike's starting to get a little, mm, you know. Tara was weird and oblivious. They also were styling Tara really badly in this episode. Like, she just looked... She kind of looked sloppy in the way that they were styling her when they first introduced her. Like, she's a powerful woman now, okay? You put her in velvet. You put her in witchy shit. They're not doing it right in this episode. But I think everybody was supposed to just kind of, like, not really be real in this episode. Maybe that's part of the social construction of real of Buffy's reality or whatever. Um, I don't know. I'm going to give it a four. I feel like I give everything a four right now. Like if I really like the episode, but it's not my favorite of all time, I just give it a four. So it doesn't matter. You guys aren't here for the ratings, probably. Thanks for listening. I will be back next week where we will talk about the Angel episode called Billy. Okay, sure. And the Buffy episode all the way. That's the one where like... <laughs> uh, Dawn, like, sneaks out to, like, go have, like, a Halloween night with her friends and she ends up kissing a vampire and, yeah. There's that whole stupid misdirect about the old man that's not actually evil, but they want you to think he is. Um, yeah. Well, I do love Halloween, so we'll be back next week where it will be Devil's Night, the night before Halloween. Ah, uh, ah, uh, ah. Uh. Ooh, am I off next week? No, I have to work next week too. Damn it. So I might be like a day early or a day late again next week, but you guys probably don't care about that. So I'll see you then. Okay, thanks for listening. Bye!